welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, episode number eight. We all know that stress can make our lives feel miserable, but did you know that left unchecked, stress may be killing you? There is strong evidence that says stress can cause cardiovascular disease. So listen in and take heart. Welcome once again to Straight Talk for Real Life. I'm Bob Peacock. Since earliest man, the human body has developed a survival system of sorts where if you are placed in a dangerous situation, the nervous system releases chemicals and hormones that make your heart beat faster, your blood pressure rise, and your breathing becomes shorter and faster, all preparing your body for what's been called a fight or flight response. The problem is that those same hormones can kick in even when you have stress from sitting in traffic, or you're about to enter a business meeting, or if you're a student and you're facing an important exam. And over time, all that stress and tension can have a big impact on your physical well-being. Specifically, there are studies that show that our body's reaction to stress can cause cardiovascular disease which, according to the World Health Organization, is the number one cause of death globally. More people die from heart disease than anything else. Now granted, not all heart diseases caused by stress, but today we'll be talking about the link between stress and cardiovascular disease and what you can do to reduce that health risk. My guest is Dr. Alexandra Crosswell, an assistant professor in psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. She's an expert in the psychological and biological mechanisms that link chronic stress to disease development in adults. Welcome, Dr. Crosswell. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. You know, we all have stress in our lives. Is all stress bad for us? Well, I'm glad that you brought that up. Because one thing that I think is important for your listeners to know is that not all stress is bad for you. And in fact, that there's some types of stress that are actually good for you. And that can be called positive stress or a challenge stress. And what the difference between a bad or toxic stress and a positive type of stress is um, are a variety of things. So. First, in a positive stressor, positive stressors are things that challenge us in life. So, for example, if you're getting up to give a public speech or you're about to take an exam that you've been studying for, you may have the same physical response that is called a stress response. Your heart starts pounding and your palms start getting sweaty, but you're actually asking yourself to perform and to show what you know and what you can do. And if you have that right mentality, that type of stressor can actually be good for you because what you realize is, wow, look what I can do. Look how I can perform on this test or look how I am actually good at giving a public speech. So all types of things that feel stressful aren't necessarily toxic stressors because some of them are just really healthy challenges for yourself. So let's talk about the kinds of stress that we need to be concerned about. And what is it that makes it so dangerous to your heart? So there's a couple different types of stress that I think we should first identify or describe. Um, and it's really important, especially from a research perspective, to get really specific in the language that we're using when we're talking about 
such a broad construct like stress. Right. Because obviously, if you say stress, it means a really broad range of things. It could mean the frustration of sitting in traffic. It could mean um, getting diagnosed with a disease. It could mean frustrations with a coworker um, and many things in between. So the way that we differentiate it in a research setting is a couple of, of different ways, but the most important one I'm going to bring up here is the difference between an acute stressor and a chronic stressor. Hmm. An acute stressor is something that has a very clear beginning and an end. So if you're about to walk into your boss's office and ask for a promotion, that may feel very stressful and difficult. And there's a very clear beginning and an end because you're walking into the office, you're having a tough conversation, and then you're leaving. And that would be considered an acute stressor. You have this high arousal and then it calms, your body calms down. That's very different than a chronic stressor. So in my area of expertise, I study chronic stress in particular. And the group of people that I tend to study and am studying right now are those that are caregivers for family members with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Caregiving is considered a chronic stressor because there's really no beginning and no end. It's a constantly difficult and challenging experience for most of the day, for most of the week. And what we've found in our research is that it's under those circumstances where the demands of the environment, the circumstance you're in, are really unrelenting and overwhelming, that your body never has a chance to put itself into a restful state where it can actually recover from the damage that that stressor is causing. Lots of people have panic attacks. Are, is that the kind of stress that can be dangerous or not so much? Well, the, so, that, so a panic attack is a, different, a distinct clinical experience. Hmm, okay. What I think that you're thinking of is the more common experience of having a really intense acute stress arousal. So if you get into a fight with a colleague or you experience being discriminated against for some reason, you would have what's called an acute stress response. So your cortisol spikes, that's a hormone of the stress response system, your blood pressure goes up, you start to feel hot and sweaty, you start to be, get in a bad mood or feel frustrated, and that's the acute stress arousal. What that is, we've been studying that now for decades as psychologists. And what we have found is that people who have a greater stress response, so they have a bigger reaction to a daily stressor, they actually have an increased risk of developing heart disease decades later. So a lot of work now has been focused on developing interventions like mindfulness practices or yoga and exercise interventions to help people develop tools to reduce their arousal so that they don't get so worked up and they, they're able to calm themselves down after they realize, oh my gosh, look how worked up I'm getting. Let me turn my tools on so that then I can calm down and relax myself. Okay. When we say cardiovascular disease, what are we really talking about? So we're talking about health disorders really of the cardiovascular system at large, which can even be as basic as, as high blood pressure. And one of the most interesting findings of about the last 10 years of research in my field of stress and health is that stress of a variety of kinds, including a 
too many acute stressors and living under chronic stress, as I described with the caregivers and also in environments when you're under a lot of work stress, those with increased levels of those types of stressors have higher levels of systemic inflammation. And what we have found is that it's the systemic inflammation that then leads to increases in high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease risk. And why this is important is that it's really showing how mechanistically at a physiological level are these stressful experiences getting under the skin to influence you at a biological level. And systemic inflammation, what it is for those listeners that maybe have heard this term but aren't as familiar, systemic inflammation is when your immune system thinks that there's a danger that it needs to respond to, but there's actually no danger in the body. And so the immune system then creates this reaction of these different chemical messengers to go out and heal some wound or, or fight some attacker. But there's nothing really to attack because the attacker is our own mind or the environment around us that has a stressor in it, not within our body. And so what ends up happening is that those chemical messengers and those parts of the immune system end up actually causing more damage instead of helping us. And some of that damage then leads to the processes that make way for cardiovascular disease. That's fascinating. We've also heard those stories where a perfectly healthy person dies really quickly after his or her spouse passes away, which is known as that broken heart syndrome. Is that just another example of how acute stress can, can affect your heart? Yes. While rare, that does happen. There's actually a, a study that I'm not sure who the authors are, but it was regarding voodoo death. And it was a study that was conducted, not in the U.S., but somewhere else in the world, where they, the community was experiencing this thing called voodoo death. And the researchers went and tried to figure out what was happening. Because what was being said by the locals was that people were actually dying at 12.01 a.m. if somebody had said, uh, who was a a leader in the community had, had put a curse on them and said that they were going to die that night at midnight. And so researchers were interested, like, is this really happening and how could that be possible? And it's very similar to, what, to the research that you're talking about with the broken heart syndrome because it, what they discovered was it has to do with the intense reactions of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is what is responsible primarily for the fight or flight response. And that it's this balance between two parts of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for getting our bodies really activated and ready to go, that fight and flight response, and the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for shutting down that response when it becomes too aggressive. And what was happening in these voodoo deaths, and my understanding is that it also is happening in this broken heart syndrome, is that it's this real imbalance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is getting us so worked up at 11.59 p.m. Oh, my God, you're about to die. You think you don't know exactly what to expect. You're worked up. And then, oh, my gosh, here comes midnight. Nothing happens. And immediately your parasympathetic nervous system turns on to relax, but it comes down like a hammer 
and instead actually shuts off your sympathetic nervous system. Wow. And you die at 12.01. That, that's my understanding of that research. That's and fascinating. So the, so the point is that it's really this balance that our bodies do between allowing ourselves to have this healthy sympathetic nervous system response so that you can respond appropriately to challenges in your environment with the parasympathetic nervous system that's responsible for calming your body down and allowing you to rest and recover and heal. And that oftentimes illness can come from when those two systems are out of balance. Hmm. Very interesting. Is, is it right to think that handling stress is more about controlling your mind? Such a good question. So the first comment I'd like to make is that there's absolutely very compelling research showing that if you can have the right mindset in different scenarios, that the mindset you have can direct your physiological response to the point where it actually can influence how well you handle the stressor. So the example I love to give is Venus Williams. When Venus Williams walks out onto the tennis court ready to take on a competitor, she is having a traditional stress response. Her heart is pounding, her blood pressure is increased, but there's some important biological effects um, of this state that she's in. One is that she actually doesn't have an increase in cortisol, but she does have an increase in adrenaline. She is in what's called the challenge response. So she is walking out there viewing this match as an opportunity to show the world that she is the best tennis player out there. Now, I haven't actually done a study on Venus Williams, but I'd like to, but this is my hypothesis about what's going on in her body. Her response is very different than somebody else who might walk out onto the tennis court feeling like, oh no, um, all these people that are watching me are really gonna judge me and they're gonna know that I'm actually not that great of a tennis player. Um, and that negative self-talk can actually put you into a different physiological place that's representative of a threat state. And the differences between a challenge state and a threat state have been studied in a research lab. And what they show study after study is that when you're in a challenge state, both psychologically and physiologically, you actually perform better, whether it's on an athletic task or it's on a cognitive task. You perform better when you're in the challenge state versus the threat state. So there are ways that you can get in the right mindset when, you're, when you know that you're walking into something that's, that's gonna be a challenge or gonna be stressful for you so that then you can perform at your best. And part of it is reappraising your experience. So when you're getting up to go on stage or you're walking into a presentation for a meeting, whatever, you're getting nervous about, if you can reinterpret your bodily signals as, okay, my body's getting prepared to perform at its best, that can really help you get into that challenge mindset. Now, the caveat, the important nuances, there's many types of stressors that you cannot reappraise, that in fact, it's unhealthy to reappraise and very detrimental for your health. So for example, if you are in an abusive relationship, you're not going to reappraise that in a positive light and have that be healthy for you. If you are in a work environment where you are, you are burnt out and you are burning yourself to the ground and you can't sleep and you know your body's unhealthy, 
the answer is not to reappraise that in a positive light. If you're being discriminated against, um, same thing. So there are a lot of types of stressors in which actually it's not about you as an individual changing your approach to it. Instead, there's very serious systemic issues that we need to address as a society or as a corporation in order to mitigate the effects of stress on individual well-being. And I think part of the negative of spreading this message of that it's all about, you know, handling stress well is that it's putting the onus just on the individual and assuming that if the individual gets sick from the stress-related issues um, or, that st or if stress kind of plays into the progression of a disease that, oh, well, it's just that individual's fault because they weren't able to handle the stressor well enough. Mm, right. Before the, the podcast, we were talking, and you said that the, the opposite of stress is safety. And you were telling me about a new theory that, that people who are their healthiest have learned to develop certain cues in their lives that make them feel safer. Can you talk about that? Yes, thank you. This is a new theory called the generalized unsafety theory of stress. And it is this idea that we, as stress researchers, we used to think that people would go about their day at kind of a baseline level, and then all of a sudden something stressful would happen, and you would turn on your, your physiological systems ready to respond to a stressor. And the new theory is suggesting, you know what, in our modern day, in fact, we might have our stress response systems turned on all the time. And that really what's happening is that everybody's baseline is an activated state. And that then there are some people, places, or routines that can be put in place in order to come down from that arousal. And that what really matters in health is that we have enough time to come down from that arousal to feel safe, to relax our systems, because it's only in that state of relaxation that then some of the healing can actually occur at the cellular level. So my mentor, Alyssa Apple and I are now writing a paper talking about what some of those cellular healing mechanisms might be and how they actually might be totally dependent on the organism, the person, feeling both unconsciously and consciously like they're safe. What I mean by safe is that they are not psychologically or physically in a place that they're going to be threatened because only in that type of environment are they able to actually relax and turn on their parasympathetic nervous system in order to put the effort and energy into long-term cellular reparation projects. How does it work? I mean, so somebody feels this stress, how, what are those cues that, that they would be developing? So one thing that I like to talk about is developing daily rituals of safety. And so what that looks like is setting up your day so that you know that there's several times in the day in which you have a ritual, which is an intentional routine around signaling to your body that you're safe and you can relax. So that might be something like at three o'clock every day, you have a reminder set on your phone that now is time for your three minutes of a relaxing breath work. So that mm. might be just taking deep breaths um, and holding your cup of hot tea. Warmth is right. a safety signal. 
So just these small rituals like that, that you can develop where your body knows just for those three minutes that you're safe and it's okay. You're not on social media. You're not talking to anybody. You're just by yourself taking a, taking a break from the chaos of our modern world. We also have some research that, again, my um, colleague Alyssa Eppel and I are working on looking at a morning ritual and intention setting showing that if for for people who start their morning off in a way where you're in a positive state and you're looking forward to the day you end up having more positive mood and better social connections throughout the rest of the day so what it's suggesting is that having a morning routine that sets you up in a positive state of mind actually has long-lasting effects throughout the day versus most of us we wake up we're hitting the alarm clock then we're then we're late then we're rushing then we got to go get the coffee now we're chugging the coffee oh got to get the shower got to get the kids out to the door and there's no actual time to set yourself up intentionally for a positive day that's very interesting in an earlier episode we spoke with olympic marathon medalist dina castor and uh, she was talking about, you know, the, the way that you spend your mind time really matters. And if you're having negative thoughts that can really create unhappiness and stress in your life. There are several studies. I know uh, the Harvard Medical School researcher uh, wrote that there are studies that show that, that people prone to negative emotions have a, a higher risk of heart disease. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that people having a positive outlook, being optimistic, cheerful, that can actually be heart protective. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, um, I think that it really that, that work that you're citing reminds me of a great theory by Barbara Fredrickson, who's at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, called Broaden and Build. And that theory asks, asks, began with asking the question, what is the benefit of positive emotions? And one thing that this theory talks about is that when you are in a more positive state and you go out and experience the world, you have a broadened perspective. Literally, you can see more things in the environment because when you're in a negative state of mind or a pessimistic mood, your eyesight like literally narrows and you only focus on what's right in front of you and you miss many things. So when you are in a positive mindset and you have this broadened view, you experience more things that are going on around you in your day, and you're actually able to build from that more resources. Hmm. So what that looks like in, in real life is that if you walk into a coffee shop in a more positive state of mind, you might notice somebody around you that you wouldn't have noticed in a pessimistic mindset. You might say hello to them. You might find a connection that person might end up becoming a friend or serving you in a, in a work situation in the future. So you're able to build resources such as a bigger social network when you're in a more positive mindset. So a lot of the work linking uh, positive mindset or, or positive emotions to reduction in cardiovascular disease risk likely works through some of these mechanisms like greater social network, uh, more energy to exercise each day or better sleep. 
some of these mechanistic pathways that we know um, from previous, from decades of research are definitely linked to better health. Well, there's so much talk these days about meditation and mindfulness. You talked about like at three o'clock, knowing that that's when you're going to just sit back and take a few deep breaths. What is your thought on mindfulness exercises? Uh, are they helpful? And how long does somebody need to meditate for it actually mm -hmm. to become effective? So I just published a paper in 2018 that was looking at people who had a daily experience where they were more accepting of the, the present moment. And so in, let me give a little context of this study. We have a study where we followed a group of mothers who were caregiving for their children with an autism spectrum disorder. So they were under extreme chronic stress. And we compared them to an age-matched group of mothers who were caring for children of the same age, but that were neurotypically developing. So they did not have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And what we found was that the women who were reported that they were really able to accept the moment for what it was, regardless of how stressful that moment was. Those were the ones who had better psychological and physical health. It aligns with a Buddhist philosophy that suffering actually comes from non-acceptance of what is. And I think that what mindfulness as a practice does is that it teaches you how to accept what is in your current moment experience and allow the emotions of that moment or the negative thoughts of that moment to just float by like a river. And my work has shown that that actually is a really important tool for physical and mental health. The best part about mindfulness is that you can do it right now in the moment. It's about experiencing what you're, what you're feeling right now in the moment and then letting it go. So I think that we've gotten really hung up as a culture right now on, okay, meditation, it's 30 minutes a day, it's so hard for me, maybe I can do 10 minutes, oh, I broke my daily habit. And I think, forget all that. We're, it will be impossible to get all of us to develop a 30-minute-a-day meditation practice. But we think of meditation and mindfulness in particular as a tool to use develop a skill to handle the stress of modern life. Now, talking about ways to reduce that stress, and frankly, to help your heart, let's talk about exercise. It seems obvious, but how important is exercise to coping with stress and lowering the risk of heart disease? Oh, essential. Um, so exercise, a couple, couple thoughts on exercise. Exercise is one of the best ways to boost your mood, to reduce your stress, to improve your sleep, and to reduce your risk of gaining weight, of high blood pressure, and ultimately of, of uh, cardiovascular disease. Some of the greatest research that has come out is saying that actually exercise doesn't have to be in these 30-minute or hour-long blocks like we were told. Mm -hmm. We can actually all get the benefits of exercise if it's in short spurts throughout the day. So, for example, if you park your car really far away in the parking lot, instead of trying to get the closest spot to, the, to that door to your work or to the grocery store, those th extra three minutes of exercise actually pay off.
And that instead of being so focused on uh, getting you know, X amount of minutes at this heart rate, that actually overcomplicates it. And it's really about just not being sedentary, not just sitting around, going from sitting in your office to sitting at home. That if you can do any sort of movement, whether it's walking or a dance class um, or playing with your kid, that it's just the physical movement that kind of adds up over the course of the day and the week, that's actually the type of exercise that has been shown to reduce the effects of our very definitely sedentary lifestyle on cardiovascular disease risk. So, and along with that, how about the importance of just unplugging, giving yourself permission to really escape from the everyday stress of the world that comes from all the online stuff? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think that really ties back to what we're experiencing in modern life related to stress and physiology. Our stress response used to really serve us because when our heart rate increased and our blood pressure went up, there was a reason. We needed to get blood pumped to our muscles so that we could run away from whatever threat, like a lion, was there on the savanna ready to chase us mm -hmm. right? evolutionarily. Well, now there's no physical threat, but the threats are coming, still coming at us just in different ways. And technology represents one of those threats. And that's because when we look at our phones, we're not in control of the messages that we're getting. We are looking externally to, and receiving, whether it's a negative email from a, uh, from, a, from a boss or coworker, we're immediately checking our phones to see what email we're getting or a text message um, or a social media post in which then we're comparing ourselves to this idealized life that somebody has put online. And so it's these stressors that come to us that end up evoking a stress response each day many, many times a day. So when you unplug, it's similar to when you do a meditation practice. You actually are removing one of the things that's causing the stressors and giving your chance, yourself a chance to actually rest and rejuvenate. Okay, how about uh, just finding a friend? You've said, I think, that loneliness is kind of this chronic stressor. Is that right? Yeah, you know, so one of my colleagues at UCSF, Matt Pantel, had a paper several, several years ago using a large data set of um, midlife adults showing that the risk of being lonely that's reporting that you don't have, that you feel lonely and that you don't have many friends that you can trust or rely on um, or feel connected to offers the same risk for developing disease that smoking does. So that's a really powerful, smoking is a very powerful predictor of disease development. And so this new research is showing, you know what? Social aspects also can present risk for disease, and in particular, feeling lonely. And this is a large issue for um, older adults in particular, because older adults tend to have increased functional difficulties, so they're not able to make it out of the house or, or to as many different activities as they once were. And so making sure to stay connected with a network, with a group, is really important as we age to protect our health. Is there any evidence that says that learning to cope with stress can still make a difference even if the stress has already caused damage to your heart? Oh, I love that question. So I would say that 
Definitely, there are studies that show that you can learn to manage stress better. So there are um, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There are retreats that are yoga or lifestyle retreats that have shown to dramatically improve your ability to handle stress. There has not been enough data to look at how reversible the damage of stress is. But I will say that some new recent work has come out suggesting that the damage is reversible in, in certain instances. So with telomere shortening, for example, which is cellular damage that happens as we age, telomeres are the caps on the ends of our chromosomes. And what happens is as we age, these telomeres shorten. And some very kind of compelling research has shown that not only can you stop the fraying of the telomeres through meditation and exercise, but that you can actually rebuild those telomeres. So some interpret that as reverse aging through those practices. I often think that, that people try to self-medicate when they're really under a lot of stress, like they'll turn to comfort foods or sugary treats. They're going to turn to pills like Xanax. Some people start drinking or smoking. These are all things that can lead to other health problems. What do we yeah. need to know about that? Yeah, you're exactly right. So those are some of the primary pathways linking stress to cardiovascular disease. So you know, decreases in exercise, increases in negative health behaviors like uh, the, the ones that you mentioned. And I think that as a society, we have not adequately developed the tools to help us cope with stress. And at the same time, there's a lot of pressure from the workplace, from the political system, from society at large, that's actually increasing the number of stressors in our lives. So we as a society need to realize this is not an individual level problem. This is not that, you know, you, Bob, don't, ha don't know how to cope with stress. It's really that we all need to learn how to better handle stress. And we also need to change the, the system so that we reduce the amount of stressors in people's lives. And I think that what individuals that are listening can take away is that if you are struggling with coping with stress uh, and turning to some of these negative behaviors. It's not you. There's not something wrong with you. You're not incapable. This is a global problem, a global crisis. And what you can do is find a couple things throughout the day that can signal safety to your body, a couple rituals and routines that work for you, and start integrating more physical movement into your day. Terrific. What's the most important takeaway from this episode? I think that not all stress is bad, that some stress is good because it challenges you to grow and evolve. It really can help to do the internal work to figure out, you know, what is the silver lining here? But there's a lot of, of life that is out of our control. And these things, these stressful events will happen to us. And so when you're able to look at it in this positive light, and see that you can grow from it, you can take some of the power back from that experience and turn it from a negative into a positive. That's terrific. 
Clearly, reducing the stress in our lives is important to reducing our risk of that stress leading to heart disease. And if you're an HPE employee or family member, links to HPE's resources for reducing stress can be found on the global wellness page on HPE Insider, or if you're in the U.S., on the HPE Wellness site. According to World Health Organization, an estimated 1.13 billion people globally have hypertension, or high blood pressure. It's often called the silent killer because it typically has no symptoms until after it's too late. So here's a reminder that it's a good idea to get a regular physical, where your doctor can listen to your heart and can take a simple blood pressure reading. Our thanks once again to Dr. Alexandra Crosswell from the University of California, San Francisco. And thank you for listening in. As always, we hope you'll subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch upcoming episodes. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Let's talk again soon.